Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast where we break down the lessons learned through sport that have helped elite athletes achieve success, but also deal with the struggles in life universal to all of us. Now, before I introduce our next guest, I just want to take a moment to say a huge thank you to every one of you who has listened to and fed back your comments on the episode so far, especially the last two that we released since our little break. It's so satisfying and rewarding to read how much so many of you took from our chats with Ronnie O'Sullivan and Amy Williams. If you haven't had a listen yet, I would urge you, click back on your feed, have a listen to the conversations. They've just been phenomenal, I think. And it's wonderful to hear that so many of you have enjoyed them as much as we have. Uh, Now, we hope you enjoy this next one just as much with Barry Hearn. Barry is one of the most successful operators in the sports industry. Now 74, his promotion of snooker, darts and boxing revolutionised those sports. And his company, Matchroom Sports, now run by his son, Eddie, who you will hear mentioned throughout the conversation, is thought to be worth between six and seven hundred million pounds. Barry is a classic rag to riches story. And after decades of hard work, he's learned plenty of lessons for success that he's happy to share with us. So we went along to ask him to do just that. Here is The Breakdown with Barry Hearn. Barry, thank you for welcoming us into your... This is your head office, isn't it? But it used to be your home, is that right? This was my lounge. We are actually sitting in my lounge. Uh, it's changed a bit, obviously, over the years. So this has been a lucky house from day one. I bought, it, I bought it from Ford Motor Company in 1982. There we are. I made some money in 82, and uh, I decided to spend it as quickly as possible. <laughs> I, I was going to retire, but I was 34. I was a bit young to retire. And uh, so I spent all the money straight away. You say you're 34 when yeah. you buy it. I mean, what did that feel like? For, for somebody, so from where you'd come to then buying a house like this? I mean, yeah. I can Amazing. I mean, it must have been the most ridiculous yeah. pinch yourself moment. I think my whole life has been a little bit like that because, mm. you see, this is where I'm so fortunate. See, I didn't have anything to beat. I think Eddie mm. and my daughter Katie, but more so my son, they're under the cosh. You know, Dad was quite well known and quite successful. Yeah. So there's, there's a, a level they've got to get past. My dad was a bus driver. I had nothing to beat. Yeah. You know, I could have been a conductor I was in front of him, you know. <laughs> My mum cleaned houses. Uh, but they were you know, lovely. I had a wonderful childhood. I was never unhappy. But you always dream. You know, I think up until probably 10 or 11, you're not aware that you're poor. Yeah. And then you find out that people actually have toilets inside their house. Yeah. Uh, and some of them have cars and things like that. And you think, and then you go to that stage about which way do you go? You know, I want them. And it sounds sort of pretty tough, but it wasn't jealousy. It was just like, I want what other people have got. Yeah. How do I get there? And, and then that was a whole strategy about, you know, you didn't have the back- background, you didn't have the university education, you didn't have mums and dads' money. And so the only way you were going to get there was graft your nuts off and just you know, get lucky, and you need to be lucky as well. But, as you say, when you do make that quantum moment, and there was a lot of planning and a lot of stories, which I won't bore you with, but at 34, suddenly someone gave me, you know, a seven-figure amount of money. As far as I was concerned, that was it. I I was finished. I mean, and you look around, you think, you realise I need the buzz. 
Yeah. You know, whether you're into sport or whether you're into a job that gives you that feeling every morning you wake up, where your pulse rate goes up when you're driving to work. My mum was a true inspiration to me in so many different ways. She was a working class snob, you know? <laughs> what do you mean? But she made me. Well, when I was 11, she made me go to elocution lessons. Oh. As you can see, it didn't work. <laughs> And then she enrolled me in the Amateur Dramatic Society. When I was 13, I was doing Bertolt Brecht plays, Shakespeare. And then when I was 14, I went into the Verse Appreciation Society. I was touring around schools doing Robert Graves' poems and God knows what. But looking back, what a wonderful beginning mm. to get into confidence to speak and to project yourself and mix with people. And it also taught me how to fight because everyone took the mick out of me. And you know what kids are like, they're very cruel, aren't they? Uh, yeah. So you stick up for yourself. But when I bought this place, my dad had already long died. My mum came to see the place and she walked around it with her mouth open. And right at the end, we were on the patio and she looked at me and she went, are you doing anything illegal? <laughs> And it sums it all up because she didn't believe for a second, although she had dreams for where she wanted her children to be, she didn't believe that we could achieve to the level that she suddenly saw in front of her. And all she could think about was, oh, you know, this can't be happening. You must be doing something illegal. Too good to be true. And I said to her, Mum, I'm a chartered accountant. We make terrible gangsters. <laughs> Do you know what I love about you, Barry? I've only met you 10, 15 minutes ago and your energy, your passion for life, clearly, is just infectious, so though. Infectious. And you're talking yeah. about how at 34, you had it made, you know, buying it somewhere like this as well as the other places that you did. But when you thought at that stage, that said, I've done it. And yet you kept going and kept going. What has been your driver? Has it been the money? I think I just got bored. Or... <laughs> I mean, I had six weeks where I thought, I mean, I've always been, I love sport. I absolutely, I mean, people don't understand. It's great when you can make money out of something you love. I mean, that is the best job in the world because it's not like work, is it? But in a way, it's better for me because, you see, I've always been quite good at everything, yeah, but yeah. never really good at anything. Mm. Apart from probably making money, we're of course. I'm about. exceptional at that. And God just smiled on me and went, Barry, you're always going to be rich, but you're going to be pretty average at everything else. <laughs> so, you know, whether it was cricket, football, whether it was athletics, I tried everything from pole vault to shot put to 200 metres. I ran marathons all around the world. I did try, I mean, I did everything. But I was like a three, I suppose it's best described, I was a three hour 20 marathon man in, when I was 40. I was fat and 40, smoked and everything. You know, when it was, it was okay for someone who's not particularly blessed with any natural ability. That's and that's the story of my life. See, I have no natural ability, but I have a work ethic that no one else can. So my candle is not the brightest in the room, mm. but it burns longer than anyone else. I will not be beaten at anything, you know. I'll, I'll get turned over when it comes to ability, but if it's just a straight out and out fight on who can go further, who can be more relentless, who will be selfish more than anyone else, who will actually go that extra mile to the extent where I don't really care, I have to win. So, That's so my whole life. Did sport frustrate you then when you were younger? Was it something that, if you're yeah. saying yourself, obviously yeah. you, you said it, you did Well, it did in a way. And in a way it didn't because, do you know, I always think curt phrases are sort of something that I try to ignore, but mm. you've come from a background where the, the phrase there is taking part is enough. And I've always thought, what, 
What a load of rubbish. <laughs> yeah, you want to win. But actually, looking back on life, taking part is the most important thing. Pushing yourself to be the best you can be. And the, the similarities between sport and business are amazingly obvious. You have to prepare properly. You have to be diligent. You have to play by the rules because mm. you'll get caught out if not. You have to give it your best shot. You have to sacrifice. So if you can take all of that, anybody who's involved at sport at the, a high level, whether they be a boxer or you know, a runner, anything, if they can achieve on that, I believe they can achieve anything in business by taking the same principles and putting it into a business. But, you know, there's no easy day. Mm. That doesn't make for nice people, for those around you. Mm. Because they don't understand you've got a limited window. Yeah. And you've just got to make that, mm. you've got to make it count. And if a few people get injured along the way, it's like a war. There comes a stage when you establish yourself at a certain level where you can actually be, you know, quite a good husband, quite a good father, quite a nice person. And then there comes a stage where you've gone past that even, and probably where I am now, where you can actually be a benefit to your community to where you come from, and you keep your feet on the ground like that. Because the worst thing can happen is you start believing in your own success. Mm, yeah, of course. As if you're like something special, and we're not. We're little specks of rubbish, really. Yeah. But we can actually help. So, you know, we have a foundation, a family foundation, and I'm getting very motivated looking at that and the things we can do. Do you know, that selfishness really fascinates me, and it's something that I see from the outside with elite athletes all the time. And I wonder, is that actually, to a large extent, the secret of success? Yes. If you can learn to be exactly. selfish and put yourself first, because most of us try to please other people. Without they? doubt, without doubt, you really have to be ruthless. Mm. What do you mean by and, ruthless? Well, ruthless with yourself. You know, everyone would like to have a night out. Everyone would like yeah. to go and do something silly. <laughs> Every time you do it, a small fraction of a percent takes away from your optimum performance level, whether you're in business or in sport. Some people, you know, are so dedicated, it's scary. Mm -hmm. But they're generally the ones that we meet. You know, they all laugh about, you know, Jack Nicholas hitting a thousand golf balls before breakfast. Yeah. But try it. Mm -hmm. Try and do it. I mean, I watched Steve Davis, my great mate, you know, and I would watch him play. And for half an hour, he would hit the white ball up and down the spots with no other ball on the table. I would do my head in. <laughs> but that's why he became a great player. Yeah. One thing that I found in my career, and I often sort of just go from my own experiences when, when we're talking to people on, on, on the pod, is what sort of changed for me. So for me, it was completely overnight. Was, you built a, a company and business and everything else went through it. For me, it was completely overnight. And what I found really interesting was other people's perception of me changed, people who even knew. Mm. Now, my closest friends didn't, it was fine. But then there was a level of weird expectation or yeah. them thinking that you must have changed. Now, of mm. course, certain aspects had, but you as the person, I still feel completely the same kid from Bletchley, Milton oh, Keynes. Yeah. And I just I'm sure you changed as well, by the way. You probably oh, didn't notice it yourself. They'd be small, of course. But, and they'd be small, but they're quite internally. small changes. But people's perception is yeah. different. Mm. And it's amazing how few friends you really have. Yeah. And even with success comes envy. Jealousy. You'll have people that want to put the knife in your back, you know, oh, he's. And the stories about, oh, he's a different bloke, are usually made up because exactly. they are Jealous. envious of where yeah. you've got to. You have to be okay with that, though, don't you, if you want to be successful? You mustn't give a monkey. Mm. You mustn't. You've got to have skin like a mm. alligator. It don't <laughs> matter because that's actually a compliment to what you've achieved. And those true friends, of which you can generally count on one hand, yeah. will still be your true friends. Yeah. 
you know, if someone upsets me or something goes wrong, I lose it. So when you know, people ask me often, you know, what's the worst day of your life? I don't think I've had one because I've already dealt with it. Mm. And by the way, there's absolutely no point in retrieving that information because mm -hmm. I can't do anything about it. Yeah, yeah. So it, to have the, the ability to write, and we'll all suffer loss and things like that. And, you know, I'm not saying you should treat it lightly, but life does go on and, you know, you're, and you've got to move with the times and you've got to expect, I'm quite cynical. I don't expect much from people. So you're optimistic and you're cynical. I'm optimistic as to the future for me mm -hmm. and my family, which is all I really care about mm -hmm. when push comes to shove. Um, anything else, I'm hopeful, but cynical, because I've been through the mill and I've seen people that I thought were perfect and they've ended up being far from it. Mm -hmm. So you, you don't let too many people into your world because you don't want to take the chance they might mess it up mm -hmm. for you. And I'm then, I know myself that if they do mess it up, then I become a different animal. Mm -hmm. And that's an animal I don't want to become. I like a nice life. That's <laughs> <laughs> nice, easy life. You laid out at the start of your book, which I found fascinating, your 10 commandments. And it's almost like 10 secrets of your success, I guess. And the first one was that you think it's better to be born lucky than good looking. Correct. Which is one that struck Greg and the way here. You reckon he's been born <laughs> good? I don't know who would do that. How to, a, a, one throwaway comment and you can hold it against yeah. me forever. No, but why? No, but we ended up chatting about it, didn't yeah. we, in the car on the way over because um, your examples of luck are it's really, selective, aren't they? Yeah, because it's you really right place, right time, isn't it? But based on hard work, yeah, surely. The, you see, the two stages of luck are everybody has luck. Everybody. Some don't recognise it and some don't take advantage of it. Okay. So that's the secondary stage of mm -hmm. luck. The initial stage is recognising, oh, opportunity. Mm -hmm. yeah. So from then onwards, the professional or whatever in you takes over, and that's not luck. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's a twofold thing. It, you know, it, for us, I mean, I gambled millions of pounds in the late 80s, anticipating that sports television was gonna come into the UK. I'd seen it in America, I'd been impressed. I was frustrated with BBC and ITV and the lack of opportunity for sportsmen and women to change their lives by being on TV and et cetera, et cetera. I was a little bit ahead of my time, so it was a delicate time, but, you know, we were focused. You, you owed the bank millions. Millions, millions. Uh, even millions. thinking about that, Brady. Well, we talk about something, you, you literally were like, I don't want to own anybody. Tenner, let alone millions. I can't owe money. No, no, nor can I, since that day. <laughs> <laughs> since that day when they were charging me 16% interest. Oh, flipping <laughs> And every day was like, I can remember early days of Matchroom. We had the, we had the Romford Suka Club, which, we, which I kept when I sold all my other clubs. And that, that used to make a profit. We used to empty the fruit machines twice a week to pay the wages. <laughs> wow. To pay the wages. And it got to the stage where, oh, and you sort of look upstairs, you say, do us a favour, mate. Mm -hmm. Can you send us down something? <laughs> Can you just give me a nudge in the direction? And then all of a sudden, two things happened. Sky launched in the UK. Mm -hmm. And they launched, and I knew they wouldn't have enough programming when they launched. So I was already there, ready with programming. Mm -hmm. And then this strange fellow with a lisp came into my life, who became the boxing version of the Steve Davis story, if you like, it was Christopher Livingston Eubank. And he became a superstar. And from 1990, I think I'm right, 1990 or 91, our profits have increased year on year for 30 years, okay. which has been 
staggering. Now, my, my, a lot of that is because I, I'm not a risk taker. See, Barry, that's not luck. No, 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 but the first bit of it, the fact that Sky came exactly the right time, just before we, before we was going to go bust, and mm -hmm. we would have gone bust mm -hmm. with that, Eubank came in and suddenly became a superstar again. We were in the business, but you need that little bit of luck. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking around it, the first phone call from my accountants when I was in the textile business in the 70s, trying to diversify a fashion business into other things. And the guy said, would you be interested in a chain of snooker halls? I'd never even been in a snooker. My mum would have clipped me around years <laughs> if I'd gone. And I went, well, I'll have a look at it. And it ended up being the most fabulous business yeah. because I bought it and within a year, the BBC went mainstream on snooker. That's luck. Yeah. But then when you're in that position, when God has given you that opportunity, now you owe it to him and everybody else to make the most of it. Was there a, a time where you're thinking, if something doesn't start within the next, I don't know, month, two months, week, day, whatever, <laughs> we're done? Was, was that ever a conversation oh, you had with anybody? Uh, no, I don't have conversations like that. Or in your own myself. right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was getting worse and worse, and I was getting, I mean, I must have been intolerable to live with. You know? This is the late 80s, is it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was bad because I was so focused. I used to go to the office, I would not leave until I sent someone an invoice for something. Mm. Might be a hundred pound, but I would not leave that office until I'd sold someone something. And this went on for two years. I had an event starting in January 1990 called Premier Snooker League that didn't have a sponsor, as nothing did, because we was in a recession. And I went to see Trust House 40. I knew them from people there, I'd done a bit of work for them, and I was gonna make a pitch for them to be title sponsor of this event. I needed 300,000 pounds. Christmas Eve at four o'clock, this is, when you get old, by the way, you don't tell lies. <laughs> you can't remember the lies, so you have to tell the truth. Christmas Eve, four o'clock, I get off a train at Slough, and it starts to snow as I walk to the head office of Trust House 40. It was Dickensian. It was like the start of a, a Shakespearean play. <laughs> and I'm feeling pretty low. I probably felt like a boxer that had eight bad rounds and knew he had four rounds left. Or he could say to his corner, I've hurt my shoulder, <laughs> pull me out. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Get that towel. I pitched to a guy called Alan Hearn, no relationship, this wonderful event. My heart wasn't in it, and I know it was the worst pitch I ever made. Sometimes you just, you don't feel the bubble. Mm -hmm. And at the end of 20 minutes, I thought, oh. And he said, uh, you must really need this. I said, well, you tell the truth, I, I do. He said, it's Christmas Eve. He said, I passed four Christmas Eve. I went, I know. He said, and I've got no money. So I thought, and I thought at that stage, you know what? That was the time. That was the time to say, oh, I can get a job. I don't have to have this type of pressure. I can easily just be a normal person. So I went, I thought I'd go out with class. I said, Mr. Hearn, thank you for taking the time to see me. It's been a pleasure as always. Let me wish you and your family a very happy Christmas and a joyous new year. And I turned around to walk out and he said, but I've got hotel rooms. And I went, what do you mean? He said, well, I've got no money. I said, no, you told me that already. I've got that. <laughs> he said, well, I've got hotel rooms. He said, I will give you 300,000 pounds of hotel rooms for that sponsorship. And at that time, Trust House 40 had Sandy Lane in Barbados, 
Lars Rathnay in Paris, Lars Rathnay in New York, the Waldorf in London, they had some good hotels. We shook our hands, we shook hands, which is all you need to do. And by the time I walked back to Slough Station, I'd sold every single one of them at 40% discount to friends, and I got 180 grand in cash. Wow. That 180,000 pounds saved my business. You mentioned pressure in that, mm. and I think it's the first time you've mentioned the word pressure. I don't but, like the word pressure. Well, this is what I was going to ask you. You seem to have a problem with well, the no, word pressure. No, the problem is pressure is an excuse used by people that fail. And when I mention pressure, it's because I was about to use that as an excuse mm -hmm, for failing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the good Lord decided that I could go another route, which was very kind of him. But I think we're privileged people. You see, I can't say I was ever under pressure. You Come on, you were look at, no, but look at the world. Look at the world. Look at the people starving. Look at the people, look at the people in this country, for goodness sake. 20%, 30% of kids not you know, going hungry in our own country. And you say, oh, I deserve to feel pressure. Oh, come on, I deserve a slap if I feel like that. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because there's obviously people, privileged people of, of every background that will feel what is deemed as pressure. The way I always sort of saw pressure is opportunity more than a chance to fail, if that makes it. And, and where I feel like I had success is because I looked at things like the Olympic Games or whatever else as an opportunity, as a chance. And of course, there was a level of pressure depending on how you see it. Because I think it's the wrong word. I just well, think... what's the word then? What's the because that'd be that'd be a great one to have that word. <laughs> I don't know. It's a question. It's a bit like bottling something. And it's a bit like taking things for granted. And it's a mixture of things. I just think pressure's just too easy to throw out. Pressure is used by people that fail. That's why the way I look at it. You pressure to your advantage as well. Because so you, again, yeah. you can look at it and say... Another tactic. Well, of course, yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, again, if a, a boxer's going into the ring to become world champion or something, there's a level of pressure on them. And if they use that to help excite them to win, and again, the tactics that's, and everything yeah, else that go with it. That's but not is there really another pressure. word? That's that... excitement. I mean, excitement. Do you know what? We don't have we don't have the right to feel anything other than excitement. If that's pressure, then use it. Use that word. But I use it as excitement, the opportunity to excel. And we are so fortunate to have just the opportunity that the rest of it pales into insignificance. And I look around and see people struggling and countries and God. I mean, all the. Goes on. I'm not sure you can use that. Yeah, well, you have yeah, okay. I mean, but it what goes on in this world, and then you think you were about to do your thing. Don't, little boy, don't come to me and tell me you're feeling pressure when you need a helping hand. When you've got nothing, only that's what I say about your real, real friends. Usually just family. But when you've got loads of stuff, I mean, I look at Eddie now. I mean, he's famous. I'm proud of him, of course. He gets given everything. Yeah. But I mean, he doesn't like, need it. We don't need it at all. There's a kid over there starving in the gutter and no one gives him a shilling, you know. So you do take a slightly different look at it. And I think it all comes down to you mustn't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Uh, but there's lots of lessons that you learn later in life. And it's all very well for me to say because I've made it. So if I was over there skin, I would look at me and go, yeah, what do you know? All I can tell him is, I do know something, because I know where I came from. Mm -hmm. And that's an advantage I have mm -hmm. over Eddie and people like that, because I know what it's like. I know what it's like when you get an orange for Christmas, mm -hmm. you know, and you're grateful. 
Did you try and actively then, when Eddie was growing up, and the, all of no. the kids, did you ever try no. and I tried check? actively to spoil him rotten. Really? Oh, That's you? very You can't help it, can you? Then no, the kids. I mean, it's terrible. I look back on it, and he was spoiled, which is, you know, I mean, we had this thing. I had a lot of chips on my shoulder when I was younger about where I came from and the people out there. And he was probably one of the people that I would have hated growing up mm. because he was a public school kid, sport rotten, you know. Gets taken to school in a limo. I mean, come on, like, you know, life's not too hard, is it? Objectionable. But the great, the DNA was still in there. This is, I mean, there come a stage, I'm sure you know, that, you know, there was one stage where he was just getting pretty obnoxious. Mm. So I took him down the gym to have a proper fight because I wanted to find out what he was like. You know, and we had a proper, I mean, a proper fight. He was only 16. He's a lump. And I wasn't particularly good, but I was 47. He dropped me twice in the second round. And I was so proud because I hit him properly and he didn't go over and he didn't swallow it. So I knew that somewhere in that DNA, he might be a pretentious kid and all that, but somewhere he was a really good person. And that good person has taken time to come out and the people will see, not only is he a pro, he's a good person, which is much more important as a dad, you know? I feel like I'm telling a comedian a joke. How can I talk to him about sport? I mean, it's pathetic, well, but I'll around, tell you. It I always time. wanted to win something and I never, ever won. I came second, third, mm. in everything, you know. In the county cross country, I came 11th, three years running. The top 10 went to the nationals. Oh, I came 11th, three times. So with all this in the background, one year, I'm so determined to win something. I go down the list outside the, the school's sportsman, 200 metres, oh, I can't beat him. 500, 400 metres, oh, I can't beat him. So I was like, oh, discus, oh, bloody hell, shop. Oh, he's in it. Right at the bottom, one mile sprint walk. No, no. <laughs> no name. No name. I went, I'm bloody in it. <laughs> so I went to see the master. I went, I've entered the one mile sprint walk. He went, really? We've never had anyone in the one mile sprint walk. I went, I know, I know. He said, can you teach me? Three months, every day, graft. I've got calf muscles coming out. I mean, oh, my yeah. bum was so, you know, like going up again. <laughs> and I got faster and faster. And then I went in the, I went in the southern divs. One by 400 yards, one mile sprint walk. Went in the southeast Essex, one by 200 yards. Went southern Essex, one by 200 yards. Come to the big day, the Essex finals, all the schools there from Essex. Winner goes through to the nationals. And I'm chatting around with these kids and we're all doing our wiggle and whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, what's your best time, mate? The classic at the start of any yeah, athletics yeah, race yeah. as well. Eight minutes, ten. What's yours? Eight, twelve. What's yours? Eight, twenty. I'm 741. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I am going to win this by a country mile. <laughs> Wrong. The moment you think like that, if yeah. I should say it, some little ginger kid goes in. <laughs> <laughs> and ended up, I, I'm, I'm still not worried because I've got so much confidence in my own self. Ended up, I went, as I went past him, got disqualified for lifting. Oh, so, so I could have come second easy. I was miles in front of everyone else. Second's no good. I've been second in everything, yeah, yeah. Rick. So, you know, so it's not just been a life of non-stop success. There's been failures. <laughs> There's been a one-mile sprint walk. Yeah, the one-mile sprint walk is not the sexiest race Never all time. Never in a million years did I think you, were a, you would have been a race walker. That's, that's made <laughs> no, absolutely made That's the chartered accountant coming out. Uh, Risk reward. It doesn't matter if you become Olympic champion, make 100 billion quid or whatever it is, you always want more. 
and that, that was, from my point of view, I was 25 when I became Olympic yeah. champion. I then wanted to become world champion. You yeah, you don't stop and think I've done that. It was, it was oh, one of those, that. for me, it was just... You saw that as a springboard rather than start. as a culmination. Mm -hmm. start, yeah. Although, when you die, please God, in many, many, many years' time, Fingers crossed. the last thing you think of before you go to those pearly gates, will you be you winning that race? Will you winning that gold medal? Almost certainly. Yeah, Without I mean, look, it's very difficult, isn't it? To that, that from my point of view, career-wise, is by far the greatest. Mm. It has to be the greatest mm. moment to become Olympic champion yeah. in London. And as we walked into no, no, the building you and you can see, can see London there. in the yeah, distance, yeah. It, that's actually one of the first. But you've come to terms with your life quite nicely as well. By the way, congratulations! Oh, thank you. Kept right. your feet on the floor. You love your children. You're going to work for them. You're doing scatty podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not all that. Very honestly, trust me. Well, no, I he is. <laughs> trust you to bring it back down. Thank you. Just, Somebody has to. We're just this setting him why, up. We were setting This up, is why it? he's got his feet still on the ground because he surrounds himself with people. He'll pull them back down again. I like yeah. to say good people, but, <laughs> but that's that's what they do. Yeah. That's what they do, and that's what true friends and true relationships about. You know. He's telling the truth. You're welcome. Um, Barry, to go back to your first love then, Snooker, Ronnie O'Sullivan, obviously becoming seven-time world Amazing. champion. Amazing. What, what was that like for you? Well, I mean, I've known Ronnie since he was 12 years old. Yeah. We don't see eye to eye on a lot of things mm. because he's, you know, he's got his own ideas. They're wrong, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's okay because I have ideas about brain surgery. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't advise you let me operate, you know. <laughs> so I, I just think he's a remarkable talent. Mm. And I'm in awe of anyone with that type of ability. Look, I've known him, his mum, his dad, the ups and downs of the family. I've watched him. I got him to be a professional when he was 16 years old. And I've got a lot of time for the kid. But Ronnie is one of those unique talents that only comes along... I'm going to say once in a century, once in a generation, whatever you want to call it. He's the best snooker player has ever been by a country mile. And I like the fact that he's in charge of his life and he does what he wants. Sometimes it's a pain to me, I have to say that. <laughs> but I can understand that that's the ultimate in, a, in accomplishments. To live a life where you literally do what you want to do 24 hours a day. It's the selfishness that makes you a winner. Yeah. I am aware that you've got a, a training session to get to, and I promise we'd only keep you for about an hour, but I want to ask you just why you think sport matters, because you clearly do. What matters so much about sport? It's, it, it's not just one or two things. It, sport epitomises exactly how you should live. You should have dreams. And a lot of the problems in society are erased, eroded, removed because of sport. Let's just get it right from day one. Allocate a percentage of gross national product to sport. We take a central view, we allocate a certain amount of funds, we create this hierarchy of maybe half a dozen people, no more, and they rule it with a rod of bloody iron. But with the brief that kids have got to have a career after professional sport, and that people participate in it will have the opportunity to change their lives. I have been lucky enough to meet plenty of successful people in this job, but to find someone with Barry's level of energy and passion for their work is such a rare thing. To have it still burning in a 74-year-old 
is something else entirely. Greg and I came away from that conversation absolutely buzzing because you can't help but be energised by Barry Hearn and have a laugh as well, which seems to be the other secret to his success, simply having fun. Well, there was more fun to be had, of course, because we had one last part of our conversation still to come, the all-essential rock, paper, scissors. It took a long time to think up how we make ours slightly different, and we came up with... Rock, paper, scissors. Rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? Do us together. Oh, we've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do this with my kids all the time. It's the only way to keep them quiet sometimes. Right. You ready? Okay. Right, we'll yeah. go straight into it. Okay. So it's rock, paper, scissors, Well, some people say shoot, but whatever. Yeah. It's just one, two, three, go. Okay, yes, fine. that's okay, what right, I do. Right, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, ready? So okay, I'll do okay. the nudge, you do okay. science, and if you're late, you get disqualified. Yeah, fine. Just I'm, the I'm, rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's all of us together. You ready? Here we go. Okay. That's the first time we've had it. No, everyone, we, it's, it's a draw. Everyone, We're going to start again. That's the first time that's happened. Everyone's a winner. Everyone's or a winner. loser. Ready? Okay. <laughs> oh! I'm out. Barry's out. I'm out. I want a recount. <laughs> this is a serious inquiry. Honestly, right. if I had the officials, I'd get, I'd get a rematch out of this. I would definitely get a rematch. Barry, nobody plays the losers. Okay. You're right. Yeah, I'm out. Really? Well, it's a fight up between me and Greg now. I know it is. I'm doing the numbers. Okay, right. I've still got a job, mate, without me. I'm promoting this event. Without me, this doesn't go ahead. It's the most exciting one we've had, I think. Oh, really? Oh, Ah! <laughs> I love it. You don't care, do you? You don't care. I always Thanks, think Barry. it's great when women win because then we don't get criticised. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it as well. Oh, if only that was as easy. <laughs> <laughs> she's, oh, jo- but... she's joined the list. Women, women winners that change the world. <laughs> I do, right?